Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Really excited about this repeat offender because one of my favorite episodes, literally of the hundreds I've done, and I rarely say this, is episode 137, which was with our guest today, Dr. Brant Courtright. And uh, we talked with him about his number one international Amazon bestseller at the time, The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle, Upgrade Your Brain, Upgrade Your Life. It was such a great discussion. If you want to go Google that episode 137 with Brant Courtright of the Primal Blueprint podcast, that's a great one. Today, we're going to be talking about his other book, new one called Holistic Healing for Anxiety, Depression, and Cognitive Decline. Really happy to have you back on the show. I'm really glad to be here. One of the things I want you to jump into right away, you always come into my mind throughout the years. It's been a couple of years since we last talked. And you always come into my mind. It's rare, but when I get a really crappy night's sleep or some sort of situation screws me up and, and, then, and then I have that dirty brain feeling the next day. And I remember you describing that and what needs to take place and why sleep is so important. Now, I know we're going to be going into uh, another direction here, but because that always comes up in my mind, I would love you to describe that. And I think that's such a palpable thing we experience. You know, you, you've been up, you're getting crappy night's sleep and your brain's not right. No matter how much you shower, or you just you feel dirty. Can you can you get into that? Because it's one of my favorite explanations. Because it's something I wasn't aware of. Yeah. So it's that the brain cleans itself at night with something called the glymphatic system, and your brain cells actually kind of shrink and become a third smaller as your brain gets flooded with cerebrospinal fluid, which gives your brain this bath or the shower and clears out the amyloid that's built up and the other debris and toxins that are built up. And so this ha the best part of this actually happens in the last few hours of sleep. So most people need six, seven, eight hours of sleep. And so getting less than that or not sleeping at all um, is a real disaster. Um, it turns out that actually when you pull an all-nighter and you don't sleep at all, you've got 30% more amyloid buildup in your brain the next day. Um, that's the same amyloid that they find in Alzheimer's. Um, and even one night of not enough sleep, and there is a measurable cognitive decline. Wow. Thank you for jumping into that. Yeah. Let's talk about holistic healing. You mean you you are a clinical psychologist? You are your last book was incredible that I just mentioned earlier in the intro. Mm -hmm. um, what made you want to jump even further? I mean, I know anxiety, depression, cognitive decline. This is your game. This is your jam. Uh, why this? What compelled you to write this that you haven't already said? Well, the other one was about brain health in general, and I wanted to really apply it to some of the specific mental disorders that I deal with every day and which are becoming epidemic. Um, most people realize, I think, by now that there's an increase in anxiety, an increase in depression, an increase in cognitive decline, but most people don't realize just how great that increase is. So um, antidepressant use has gone up four times um, between 1980 and 2000. Um, one in four women between 25 and 45 takes an antidepressant. Um, anxiety has now surpassed depression as the number one mental disorder. Um, prescriptions for different kinds of benzodiazepines, for SSRIs, we're talking 30, 40, $50 billion a year here from the pharmaceutical companies. And it hits the young most of all. So childhood rates of depression are five to eight times what they were in the 1960s. And childhood rates of anxiety are eight times what they were in the 1960s. And that's not with better testing. That's using the exact same standardized tests as were used back then. 
Mm-hmm. Plus now there's ADD, ADHD, there's autism. There's all the stuff that hardly even talked about back then. Um, Alzheimer rates are five times what they were in the 1960s. So something is going on. And although there's more... Yeah, well, hey, what... <laughs> WTF is going on, doctor, right? <laughs> right? And and also, what are you doing? What are you doing to battle it? Because we want to hear your solution. <laughs> right. So, <clears throat> so clearly there's something in the environment, right? It's not genetic. That takes 50,000 years. Um, it's got to be something in the environment. So my own sense is that it's many different things, but that the brain is under assault. It's a neurotoxic environment in a way that it never has been before. Everyday life is a neurotoxic minefield. And so it's, it's many different things. So there's different kinds of, inv- so first of all, we are, we are psychophysical beings, right? We are a psychological existence, a self, and we are a brain as well. Um, to differentiate this even more, we exist on different levels, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, right? So looking at this holistically, body, heart, mind, spirit, we can also sort of break that down into the physical side, the brain, and the psychological side, heart, mind, spirit. And so the fields of psychology and of psychiatry come at this from different angles. Psychiatry and the medical world says that anxiety, depression, cognitive decline are physical brain diseases that need drugs to be cured. And psychologists say, psychotherapists say, no, these are psychological issues, unskillful behavior, which then causes the brain changes we see. And so it's been a chicken or egg thing, like which paradigm do you go with? And as a psychologist, for many years, I went with the psychology side, thinking probably 80% of it is behavioral, psychological, and maybe 20% is brain stuff. But I've come around to thinking, actually, it's a chicken and egg thing, that not only is the brain under assault, but the self is also under assault. But I've been particularly drawn to the ways in which the brain is under assault. So some of these things you know already, and you've had guests on that have talked about this. So environmental pollution, um, plastics, for example. Everybody has different levels of plastics that are measurable. There's nobody on earth that doesn't have some level of plastics in their body. These are hormonal disruptors, endocrine disruptors, which greatly affects mood and cognition. Um, So phthalates, um, plasticizers of various kinds, um, microplastics, you know, they're, they're at the Arctic in the air in the Arctic on the, on deserts. There's, there's microplastics in the air. Everybody's getting these. There's glyphosate. There's, there's smog. Um, Well, by the way, I just want to clarify when you say glyphosate, we're talking about walking in to your local Home Depot and there's a wall of Roundup right there. That's it. That's it. That's right. Glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, is the most widely used pesticide in the world. 300 million pounds of it are used every year in America. And more than that are used in China, in India, and in Brazil. And glyphosate is, for one thing, it's an antibiotic. And so it wipes out the microbiome of the soil, of the plant, and of your gut, of your intestines. It wipes out your own microbiome, which we know is not good. And it also opens up the tight junctions of the intestines. Now, the tight junctions are what keeps out the bad stuff and lets in the good stuff. And when those tight junctions open up, it opens up the floodgates to all sorts of toxins into the body, which creates inflammation. And chronic inflammation, as you well know, and your listeners well know, is behind most of the major diseases, Um, heart disease, cancers, Alzheimer's, on and on. Now, when the tight junctions of the gut open up and let in all this toxic stuff, it also opens up the tight junctions of the blood-brain barrier. 
because that responds to the same molecular signaling as do the tight junctions of the gut. So glyphosate not only lets in stuff into your gut, it also lets it into your brain. So we go from leaky gut to leaky brain. Now, when the brain... I'm like, like, what a downers, but it's so... uh, Okay, before we go further, and I'm going to take a little left turn, I promise to get back, but in talking about this substance and in general... Before we got on air, you mentioned that you are currently in the uh, state of Kauai, or you're in Hawaii, but you're on that island. And there has been such terrible news out of the Hawaiian Islands in the past few years, right? Um, lots of doc- couple documentaries done on killing paradise because of the pesticides and these types of chemicals that they're using to, you know, test GMO crop corn and things like that are really killing the earth, not to mention they're just spraying all around with nearly, you know, with abandon because there's no rules about having to report what they do. And so there has been a lot going on in the islands right now as sort of like this, hey, you guys are testing all your chemical shit on our, you know, soil and you're ruining it and you're ruining it and you're ruining us. Um, So let's talk about how uh, this affects soil, the plants, and then when we eat it, because I know that that's an argument for, yes, if we can do organic as much as possible, but aside from directly, you know, spraying our own lawn, can you tell us how it sort of gets into the bot, like what it actually does, what it's doing, and, and why would they use it? Give us a layman's explanation of why this is, you know, so advantageous to them. Well, um, it's advantageous because they have genetically bred certain crops to withstand high amounts of this, meaning like eight to 10 times that you would just spread on a regular lawn or a garden. So certain crops like cotton, for example, um, are genetically bred to take huge amounts of glyphosate. And so glyphosate, it gets into the soil and kills all of the microbiome, a lot of the microbiome in the soil. It kills the microbiome of insects, which is why it's a pesticide. Um, And in that process, it makes plants less able to take in the nutrients. And so a lot of commercial food is lower in vitamins and minerals because of this. Now, in the Midwest and in the South, they use so much of it that it's in the dust. It's in the rain. It's like, it, I mean, it's a kind of a crazy idea to begin with, to think that we can poison the That's earth. That's not a selling point. Ourselves. That's not definitely, I'm from the Midwest and I'm like, well, I'm glad I left. I mean, if that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now I'm in like Aaron Brockovich state. Like, I don't even know where do I go? Where do I go? Yeah, hang on. Um, we'll, we'll get there. So yeah. one more thing, one more alarming statistic, which is yeah. that UCSF did a study and they found out that 93% of Americans, this was a few years ago, 93% of Americans have measurable levels of glyphosate in their system. It's probably even more than that by now. So the first thing anybody should do is to eat organically, for sure. That'll take 80% of the pesticides out of it. Unfortunately, because of drift, even some organic crops are contaminated with glyphosate. But um, if you eat very organically, you will be reducing that burden hugely, and you can actually get to the point where it's not measurable in your system. Also, eating commercial meats, commercial meats are fed with grains that are glyphosate-laden, and so a lot of just commercial meat is terrible, not only because it has a poor omega-3, omega-6 balance, but because it also has hormones and a lot of glyphosate in it. Yeah, and I want to I want to highlight that. I mean, a lot of our listeners know, but if not, um, for example, it always confused me when I would see a package back in the day, and it would be like no antibiotics, and I'd be like, well, why is that even up? Like, why would you? And when you're feeding animals their non-native diet 
of grains, and then where are those grains coming from? Right back from the glyphosate factory, uh, essentially. Right. And uh, then they get sick, and you have to give them antibiotics. It also ruins the land. And this is, you know, for people interested in this topic, I've interviewed several pasture, uh, you know, farmers who who raise pasture raised animals and what they're doing for the land. Rep Provisions is one of them. Um, Bell Campo is another great company. There's uh, Wild Oak Pastures. There's there's so many places, and this is the meat that I choose to eat, not only because of what you're talking about, but also because of the proper land management and regenerative agriculture from whence those meats come from. Like, you know, I mean, that is exactly the cycle of what we should be contributing to. So I just wanted to highlight that as well on the organic uh, food notion. Yeah, thanks. That That's an important piece to this. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So um, just one other thing, which is smog. Um, so 90% of the world's population lives in polluted uh, air. And the really small molecules in smog, the 2.5 micron and below molecules, are so small that they enter the bloodstream through the lungs. And they're actually small enough to then pass through the blood-brain barrier into the brain, where they act like little wrecking balls in the brain with the very delicate neurons of the brain, and create inflammation. So there are some people that think 30% of the world's Alzheimer's can be attributed simply to smog, simply to not having like an air purifier if you live in a really smoggy area. Um, So my own view is that it's, and we could talk about emotional toxins, we could talk about mental and spiritual toxins, but the main idea I want to get across is simply that the world has more neurotoxins in it than it's ever had before. If you go to Wikipedia, it'll list 6,000 neurotoxins, each one with its own Wikipedia page that were never in the environment until very recently. So I think it's death by a thousand cuts. One or two, you don't notice. You don't even notice 20 or 30, but after 100 or 200, you begin to falter and you begin to have symptoms such as anxiety, depression, or cognitive decline. Yeah, I, uh, I'm old enough to remember the simpler days, and I long for those moments of not having the attention to technology we all have and the level of multitasking involved as a result of the technology and the availability of information, et cetera, right? It's a lot on the brain and I'm, you know I mean, it's a lot. Um, and so I, I can, I can absolutely, absolutely see that. Um, you know, it's funny. I was talking to another doctor and we were talking about sort of this topic in a way and, I'm sort of a known, not fan of alcohol because of what I feel it does to my brain. Mm. And so it's very rare. It's like once every couple of years, I'll have a sip or half a glass of something. But not too long ago, um, was celebrating and decided, and I had like a couple glasses of champagne. I was brain dead for three days and was, it wasn't like I was sick and I'm all over the floor and a disaster physically in the way people think of being hungover. My brain, I, wow, it was bad. And also such a depressant. Can you, why, why does that happen? And also if it's not happening to people like it does with me so instantly, how it will happen over time. This is something I see that really affects the brain that is a part of perhaps cleaning up one's life if it's not working for you. And um, I just had a hit of it recently because it's so rare that it happens. And when it did, I was like, oh gosh, I thought, now I remember why I don't, don't do this to myself. It's almost like I could feel the brain cells just completely murdered. Like they were, I, I was, it was terrible. That's right. Um, <clears throat> alcohol is a neurotoxin. Um, it does kill brain cells. Um, not a lot, but still enough. I'm of the opinion that I don't want to lose any if I don't have to. I had one psychopharmacology teacher swear that every full drink killed 100,000 brain cells. Um, It is clearly neurotoxic. Um, And if you don't, some people can handle it, meaning that they don't feel the extreme symptoms you do afterwards. But it adds up over time. And so a major cause of dementia is from alcoholism. It just, the, the brain just goes. So you're absolutely right. It's, 
you are lucky to be like a canary in a coal mine for this sort of thing because it's warning you off of this. Um, but some people who aren't as sensitive aren't so lucky. They feel they can do it with impunity because they survived and feel fine the next day or the next two days. But it's taking a toll, no question. I want to talk to you about mindset. You know, we can talk about all of the wonderful ways to treat a body, fasting, all of the things that most of our audience knows and is in your books. And yeah, that's valid. That's that's what we're here to talk about. But, you know, part of also the primal blueprint, primal living, is the connection we have between people, ourselves, the world. Um, we have gone so far away from that, right? Our hunter-gatherer ancestors did not have to uh, well, they 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 didn't have victim mindsets. They would be mur- they would be killed by something if they had a victim mindset. If something didn't work out, they had to move on. They saw challenges as things to overcome. You know, this they didn't have time to wallow and be in the different world that we are psychologically. And granted, you know, no one wants to be living in that time for the opposite reasons of of that world as well. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to be a woman in caveman days. Uh, so yes, but. Oh, wow. You know, so we have this mindset, we have this thing, you could change your diet to the utmost degree and get some things right and control cortisol and blood glucose and a lot of the things that affect neurotransmitters in your brain and the gut. But what about mindset, overcoming trauma, um, understanding, uh, again, just one's own thoughts and being able to see that you're in a negative pattern. Let's talk about the toxicity of thoughts and you know, of course, I talk about it in my book too, like being around downers and filtering that out and or filtering out information I'm going to put in my subconscious. Like I'm not going to watch horror films 24-7. It's probably going to bum me out, right? So let's get into a mindset talk here. You know, this is your expertise. How do you, how do we navigate detoxing that way? Okay, good. Good. So <clears throat> there are common neural mechanisms underneath anxiety, depression, and cognitive decline. But there are very different psychological processes. Each of them have their own kind of unique um, version of what goes wrong. So in terms of the common neural mechanisms, that involves the hippocampus, it involves the neurogenic rate of the brain, and there is a kind of brain-healthy diet that I lay out that has four pillars, neurogenic, ketogenic, anti-inflammatory and gut-friendly. And we can go into that. But it's a very different um, picture when we're looking at the psychological side. And ideally, I think it's good for people to work psychologically and on the brain side. Sometimes people feel better just as their brain heals and gets stronger. Sometimes they get better just working psychologically. But my own sense is that it's best to work with both together. So if we're talking about anxiety, we're talking about a number of different causes of anxiety. Or if we're talking about depression, we're talking about a number of different things that are happening. So with anxiety, for example, um, one cause of anxiety is, as you're saying, trauma. Um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. When a person has trauma early on in life, what happens is that it sets the brain on high alert, on red alert. And so the person becomes kind of primed to be anxious, primed to be scanning the environment for threatening cues. Um, And so working with and resolving PTSD is one dimension for some people, for many people actually, because trauma is a lot more prevalent than we had ever thought until recently. Um, Generalized anxiety disorder is this view that, you know, it's not just, you know, there's different kinds of anxiety. You know, there's social anxiety, there's specific phobias, there's PTSD, um, but there's also generalized anxiety disorder, which is what most people seem to complain of, that they're just, they're stressed many people refer to the, to their anxiety disorder as they're, they're stressed rather than an anxiety disorder. But if you look a little further, you see it's really, they're anxious. And generalized anxiety disorder has been kind of a puzzle. But it seems like one of the major causes of it has to do with 
a discovery of Freud. Freud discovered something he called signal anxiety. Now, I know we've talked a lot of the discourse these days is how we've gone beyond Freud, and we have in many ways. But some of his discoveries were pretty foundational to really inventing the whole field of psychotherapy. And one of his major discoveries was signal anxiety. And signal anxiety is where the unconscious learns that a certain feeling or a certain set of feelings is very dangerous because it threatens the parents. It threatens the vital tie the child has with their parents. And so the child learns to push those feelings down, to stay away from those feelings. And as that gets internalized, as that feeling, say it's anger, for example, as anger begins to come up, the unconscious goes, wait, danger, danger, danger. Here comes something. Careful. Anxiety floods the system. The unconscious pushes it down before the person even realizes their anger. And then slowly the anxiety begins to fade. That's signal anxiety. And a lot of what we see in generalized anxiety disorder is signal anxiety, where the person is really afraid of some of their own deepest feelings. It may be a feeling of expansiveness, maybe a feeling of shame. It may, God knows what it could be. It, it's many, there's many common culprits here. But at bottom, generalized anxiety disorder is kind of like the fear of being yourself. Right? The fear of really feeling your deepest feelings. And to learn to feel those feelings again, to accept them, to be able to express them, that doesn't happen usually in isolation. That's what psychotherapy is for. Because we learn that these feelings are forbidden in relationship, we also need to learn that they are okay in relationship. And so in therapy with a wise, compassionate, therapist, these feelings can be unearthed and accepted and welcomed and explored and then expressed. And as that happens, the anxiety begins to diminish. Um, I've gone on for a while. I want to just check in with you. How about you? Love it all. Let's uh, uh, more on sort of like the depression part. It's hard, you know. Uh, I know that uh, what you're saying in terms of when people start, and we see it when they start to detox, get the body together. Like, oh, their brain is right. I had high mercury. I can tell you, my brain was not. Uh, yeah. Now you're detoxing from it. So, I get that. Let's say you get to that point, though. But there's still that trend maybe in that person where they're continuing to tell that same story or relive that that, you know, that, that, tra not necessarily that trauma, but I guess this, the story of themselves, How, what do you, what do you do when you're having a bad day or, you know, you start to see that you're sliding into negativity, maybe it doesn't happen to you anymore, but when it did, what were the tools you would do to turn yourself around to create a better thought and not go down that spiral? Uh -huh. Well, my tendency has been to find out what it's all about. Um, why am I going down? What am I upset about? What am I sad about? Um, <clears throat> I tend to think of depression not as a signal that something um, that I'm, that, it, that it's a bad thing in itself, but a signal that something is off, that, that, that there's a meaning to it. There is some reason that I'm feeling depressed. And so when we look at depression, again, we see many different causes. Um, one cause, for example, is it indicates a loss much earlier in life that was never grieved, but which has stayed with the person. And so something then later in life triggers that. Um, sometimes it's a matter of not following your calling, not following your deepest authentic self's calling, and kind of settling for something less. Um, Abraham Maslow once said that, he said, I promise you that if you s deliberately set out to be less than you can be, you'll be unhappy. And I see that a lot in my clients, that they were too afraid to go for what they really wanted to go for early on because they were afraid they would be devastated if they didn't get it. And so they settled 
for something else. And in settling, there's just less life energy moving towards that thing, whatever it is. Whereas if we go for what we want and then we don't get it, well, then, okay, we grieve. We, we mourn. We let that go. Say I want to be an NBA basketball player. Um, I, I don't, but say I did. <laughs> I then go and I see, okay, that's not going to happen. So I grieve that. I let that go. And I let the next emerging desire and passion emerge. Um, and I go for that. Um, I've had clients settle for relationships, for jobs, for a lifestyle, and it does indeed lead to depression. Another cause of depression is chronic inhibition, right? A person grows up in an environment where they, they're, they, they don't feel free to really express themselves. Our emotions are meant to be expressed as much as possible. Sometimes it's not appropriate and we need to simply contain them. But much of the time they guide our life, they inform our life. And if they are chronically inhibited, that energy which should be going out into the world and reaching towards people and, and activities instead gets turned back into the self eventually that's going to result in depression, right? That energy just has to go that way. Let me ask you a question on that note. I think this is related and I don't know where I heard this many years ago, but it was someone who was giving me an example of what had happened in their family where the father was a doctor and wanted their children to follow that path, but the child was not exuding that sort of makeup completely the opposite. And he kept pushing her <laughs> in this direction. And the the sibling had had thought that it sort of did something to her personality as a whole. You know what I mean? This, you know, so can we talk about too, or is that valid, the danger of pushing one in a direction when your the, the child's proclivity is for another expression of something, whether it's artistic and you're trying to get them to be a scientist or what does that do to the brain in a negative way? Um, that's an interesting question about what it does to the brain. Um, what it does to the person is pretty clear. I mean, that, that's a great example you're using where the person just goes along with the parents program and the parents are too, I don't know what, self-involved something. They want what's best for the kids, but they don't really sort of see the child for their own kind of unique gifts in the world and sort of want to push them in their own direction. And I've seen that a lot also. It's, it's a disaster. And one of the causes of another kind of depression, which I talk about in the book as the dark night of the soul. And the dark night of the soul often happens either late 20s, 30s, can also happen in the 40s and 50s, but it's where there's a, this kind of close to midlife change in the psychic balance, where the first half, the first part of life, the energies went outward into the world and sort of conformed to society, whether that's family, parents, teachers, whatever. But we're kind of out of touch with the inner essence of who the person was. And then as the person gets closer to 30, mid-30s, 40s, there is a kind of more inward turning where the parts of the self that were left behind begin to assert themselves more fully. And what happens in the dark night of the soul, um, this, this comes from a... St. John of the Cross, a 15th century mystic um, in the Christian tradition, who talked about this as being kind of a years-long process that really brought the person closer to a spiritual life. And the same thing happens here. I think this is one of the kind of spiritual um, dimensions of depression, where in beginning to really face and turn towards what is causing this depression, the person sees that, first of all, there's a kind of lack of will. There's a sort of um, 
a lassitude that begins to happen. The person is trying to do the, you know, what they're supposed to be doing, but they just can't do it. They just can't get it up anymore to do the same old stuff. It just becomes harder and harder. And that is part of the dark night of the soul, where it's just the ego can't force itself down its old pathways anymore. It needs to kind of surrender to this deeper, it's, it's actually a psycho-spiritual process that's happening, where the soul, the kind of the deeper parts of the person are asserting themselves, and they're kind of going on strike with this, this false life that's been built up. Um, if they split up into a crew, that's a different disorder. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> um, and so there are different markings along the way. Um, Let me uh, ask you about uh, something related to cognitive decline. Sure. Or, you know, maybe the adverse like cognitive encouragement. <laughs> um, so I, uh, my, my grandparents had some great long lives, but my grandmother and both my grandfather were always adamant about challenging their brains. My grandmother did not stop studying Chinese for like 30 years. She was like 95, still translating Chinese and reading and always just, very, you know, and then there was a point where you're like, okay, <laughs> you know, I mean, of course. Uh, and then she went, but for the most part, extremely sharp. Now, granted, part of it was exercise and, you know, health habits, and I'm sure partially genetics too. But um, I just feel so different even from many years ago where I went through maybe a phase over a decade ago where I just wasn't interested in reading and learning and sort of just like uh and coasting and then got into a different space and really started to just sort of soak up a bunch of things and be more of a you know student of life in a lot of ways where things you know and again I suffered from hypothyroidism so my brain wasn't working so great in those years <laughs> maybe that was it um but you know Tell us about the advantages of continuing to learn and challenging one's brain. I mean, I know people go, oh, I just do the crossword, but is that really enough? And can we talk about cognitive decline and the effects of learning new things? Yeah, great. Um, you've put your finger right on the, the, the nail there. Um, the key to not experiencing cognitive decline, aside from taking care of your brain, is lifelong learning that the brain thrives when it is stimulated and it is most stimulated when it's learning new things. So <clears throat> the brain itself is always growing, right? We, we think of the brain as this, sometimes the metaphor is used as it's, it's a computer, but that's a terrible image because a computer is a dead thing. The brain is not like a static computer chip. It's a moving, living, growing almost like an organism almost like a big amoeba or something it's always it's always making new connections within itself called neuroplasticity or synaptogenesis and it's always growing new brain cells called neurogenesis and it turns out that our neurogenic rate that is the rate at which the brain is growing is the most important biomarker for brain health that most people have never heard of. So when the brain's growth rate is high, we see cognitive enhancement. We see uh, rapid learning of new things, rapid figuring out of puzzles. We see protection against anxiety, protection against depression. We see robust emotional resilience. It just feels good to be alive, right? When the brain, when the neurogenic rate is up, it just feels intrinsically good to be alive. Well, I have... So, uh, so, so, I'm coming around to your question. There's a long way of coming around to your question. So although there are dietary ways of increasing the neurogenic rate, there are also mental cognitive ways. And the key way is lifelong learning. That lifelong, that when we learn new things, that stimulates the neurogenic rate. It stimulates neuroplasticity and neurogenesis both. It increases BDNF, this brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is like miracle grow for the brain. So you're absolutely right. Just doing crossword puzzles 
isn't enough because it doesn't generalize. It just makes you better at crossword puzzles. That's it. We need to do a variety of cognitive tasks. We need to be cross-training the mind. Um, learning new languages is great. Going to new places, traveling is great. Even taking a different way home is great. Being in nature is great because it's a very complex visual environment. Um, yeah, that is, um, you know, it happened actually the other day. Well, I will say that one of the benefits of the pandemic in a lot of ways was I went and explored new trails and ended up finding like secret hiking trails and all sorts of stuff. And it was this whole web and I live in the mountains, but I kind of went on the same trails. And so I discovered this whole new world. And then, so <laughs> just the other day, my, my sort of hiking, walking buddy and I, um, it was sort of cold and we were just walking our normal, uh, sort of a normal road walk. We do not even a hike. And at the end of it, we discovered another secret trail. And I tell you what, it wasn't necessarily that long or anything else, but we walked up it and got a new Vista and you could just immediately like our, you can hear me light up talking about it. Like our, we lit up, we were different people <laughs> in that moment, just from the discovery, the new view, the, again, a new, a new thing. It was just so awesome. And that whole experience of finding these secret hiking trails was me intentionally going, you know what? what's down that road? I live in the mountains. Like I was like, well, I've never been down that street, that road, what's happening over there. And I just did a drive one day. And then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> and then, you know, and then I just sort of started to explore and I got to tell you, it's wonderful. I mean, I agree about being in nature and that's why I do live in the mountains. Uh, but it, I mean, it just like lit us up. And so now I've, uh, started to be like, okay, what other kind of new discoveries can I look forward to? But Wow, it lights up. It we really lit up immediately upon you know all of these discoveries, and in a way, that's where I'm grateful for this, you know, sort of time that we've had. Um, in a way, a negative situation turned into a positive over here in in this regard. Yeah, fantastic, great story, great story. That's right, and they've actually shown in the laboratory that being in nature increases your neurogenic rate. Um, so it's nice to have that confirmed. I mean, it's, it's kind of common sense because it feels so good intrinsically, but it's kind of nice to have it confirmed uh, through research. What else would you like us to know about holistic healing when it comes to anxiety, depression, or a cognitive decline? Well, I think, again, working both sides of the equation is important. But I guess I'd like to just spend a little bit of time on the brain side because there are these common neural mechanisms um, at work. And the common neural mechanisms involve basically a neurogenic slowing, particularly in the hippocampus. So the hippocampus is a part of the brain that is involved in emotion regulation, particularly the regulation of anxiety and depression, as well as memory and cognition. So the hippocampus is what processes new memories. So it doesn't store new memories, but it allows new memories to form. So in Alzheimer's, for example, Alzheimer's massively attacks the hippocampus. Um, trauma, for example, can actually, severe trauma can actually shrink the hippocampus, can actually cause such neurotoxic, neurotoxic damage that the hippocampus shrinks by one quarter. I mean, that that's a lot. That's like saying wow. you have one of the four chambers of your heart. I mean, that, that, that's right. a lot. So the good news is that the hippocampus is one of the only places in the brain that actually grows new brain cells. So we can increase the neurogenic rate. And as we do that, then we see that these symptoms recede. So given just this neurotoxic environment that everybody lives in and nobody is spared completely, learning about how to avoid some of the major um, parts of this minefield is helpful, but to heal and strengthen the brain, I think is also very important. And so the healthy brain diet goes into, again, I think of it as these four pillars of neurogenic, ketogenic, anti-inflammatory, and gut-friendly. And the neurogenic part simply involves increasing our neurogenic rate. And there are about 30 different nutrients we can take 
that'll increase our neurogenic rate. And there's also important things we need to avoid, which slow down the neurogenic rate, such as the standard American diet. Standard American diet is like a recipe for cognitive decline, Alzheimer's, <laughs> anxiety, and depression. <laughs> you couldn't go better than that. Right. Um, Actually, I'll, I'll give a shout out to uh, one of Primal Blueprint's uh, published authors, Denise Minger. She wrote a book called Death by Food Pyramid, <laughs> all of the shoddy science and shady dealings behind that. But yes, I mean, uh, that's one way to start to eliminate it is to get rid of some of those things on that pyramid. Yeah, exactly. Um I actually have two phases of the diet, the healing phase and the maintenance phase. And the healing phase is ketogenic and the maintenance phase is, is simply low carb. But for healing the brain, a ketogenic diet for a period of time is hard to beat. Um, the phrase that many researchers are now using with the ketogenic diet is neuroprotective. So it's being used with um, epilepsy, it's being used with Parkinson's, it's being used in Alzheimer's trials. Um, Alzheimer's is sometimes being called type three diabetes. And so oh, yeah. when people switch to ketone bodies as a fuel rather than just glucose, many times certain cognitive functions come back online. Um, yeah, I met a, um, a parents of a child who had like 40 some odd seizures a day in their first year of birth. And then they actually put their baby on a ketogenic diet. And they, they speak, I, f I forget his name, but really interesting story. And now she's got none and also have a couple of friends who, you know, adopt your program because they have traumatic brain injuries. And mm -hmm. uh, for them, that was their way of not only getting, you know, some would say maybe even getting out of the coma or healing the condition, um, but the way that they are optimized. Yeah, yeah. And once you are keto adapted, and your brain is running on ketones as fuel rather than glucose as fuel, it feels like you are running at a higher level, right? There, there's this one researcher out of Harvard, Richard Veach, who died recently, who looked at the effects. Yeah, I interviewed of, him. Oh, <laughs> oh great. Okay. So, well, so you know all about this. Good. So he talked about how the mitochondria of the heart operated, I think it was like 28% greater efficiency on ketones over glucose. And the mitochondria of the neurons are very similar to that of the heart. So if you can imagine your brain working at 28% greater efficiency, it feels pretty good. I mean, once you've been on ketones for a while, once you've been ketogenic and clearly in nutritional ketosis for a while, it's hard to go back to just being a sugar burner again because it's almost like your brain kind of slows down a bit. Oh, you are so speaking this podcast language on that because that's, you know, what's in my book, uh, Mark Sisson's Primal Blueprint, just that whole, and that's really what, when I'm interviewed about the topic, if I'm not talking about my second book, is when it comes to paleoprimal or ancestral health or any of these sort of lower carb paradigms is, you know, really the effect on the brain and how suddenly that is, that's the thing that if you just give it a couple of weeks and you really just put some effort into changing the the diet, wow, uh, the brain lights up in ways that it's the first thing people notice and talk about. And it's so exciting. And it's it's hard to go back, you're right, to the eating a meal and falling asleep two hours later. Yeah, that game is over once you've experienced uh, the benefits of sort of running on ketones. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. And not only is there a clarity which comes, but there's also a stability, right? There's a, there's a kind of, um, again, I think it's the best diet for anxiety or depression. Um, and there are clinical trials now starting um, using simply that. Um, so I think that's helpful, but not the whole thing. I think also anti-inflammatory and gut-friendly are very, very helpful here. Um, if the brain is inflamed, we are going to experience probably some degree of anxiety, depression, and cognitive decline. All of those are related to inflammation states. So in depression, the brain is inflamed with anxiety. That, the high cortisol levels, sooner or later that creates inflammation as well in the brain. So there are different nutrients we can take which lower um, inflama inflammation levels. One good blood test for people to have every year when they get their physical is 
called a high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, which is a general inflammatory marker. And if you are over 0.5 for a man or over 1.0 for a woman, then you should bring your inflammatory levels down by going on a full-fledged anti-inflammatory diet. And the book goes into this in more detail. And then gut-friendly. So as you know, the microbiome has been pretty much decimated with our overuse of antibiotics, our overuse of antibiotics with animals, right? When we eat meat, we're also taking antibiotics, which is um, decimating our microbiome. Most indigenous cultures have about 20,000 strains of bacteria, right? We've got about 40 trillion uh, bacteria in our gut, same number of cells we have in our body. They used to think we had more uh, bacteria, but they've done a recount. They think it's about the same number of cells in our body as bacteria in our gut. But of that, in indigenous cultures, they have about 20,000 strains. But in the Western cultures, they have about 10,000 strains, which is not good. And some people have as low as 500 or 1,000 or 5,000, which since most of our immune system is there in the gut, it's not good for our immune system, right? And the more diverse a, an ecological system is, the more robust it is. And so what we want to do is we want to increase the microbial diversity of the gut. And we want to heal the tight junctions so that they are functioning properly. You know, they did this one experiment with mice who were genetically bred to be anxious. And another group of mice... That well, that's messed up. <laughs> I know, I know. They a lot of messed up stuff that goes on, but still, they just. I mean, not even the experimenting on the mice part. I'm okay for that, but I'm just saying, like. (laughs) I know, I know. I know. We could do a thing on just. (laughs) Um, Freud used to say that uh, a a, a surgeon is somebody who had sublimated his sadism, (laughs) and I think the same is true with some of these researchers, also. Um, At any rate. So they had another group of mice that were genetically bred to be fearless and exploratory. And what they did is they exchanged the microbiome of each. And so the fearless mice got the anxious mice microbiome and they became anxious. And the anxious mice got the fearless mice's microbiome and they became exploratory and fearless. So the microbiome trumps genetics or at least it throws the epigenetic switches. And there are a couple of strains of bacteria which have been shown to reduce anxiety scores by 50%. And again, the book goes into these. So getting our microbiome healthy and having some of these good strains has also a powerful effect on our mood. There are certain strains that have been effective for depression and some that have also been effective with cognition as well. So our microbiome has a big effect on our brain function. Yeah. And also I, okay. And I'm, I'm not a doctor and I, I'm not a, I don't know anatomy backwards and forwards, (laughs) but it seems to me that if you're correcting brain function for all of these lovely reasons, maybe of which you're not even suffering from them, but you just want to stay right and, you know, stay happy. Um, but the brain is in charge of signaling, signaling so many other things, right? It would seem that perhaps there would be optimal widespread function. I mean, I know, yes, like we've already talked about that in a way, but do you know what I'm saying? That connection, it just seems so interesting. Like whether that's, is it because things are firing better? Is it because like, what are yeah. some of the tangential yeah. things I wouldn't think about uh, that you might be like, oh, what you don't realize it's affecting is this, you know what I'm saying? Right. Well, it's affecting a lot of things. It, um, a healthy microbiome is making sure that the inflammation levels are way down in the brain. Um, 80% of our neurotransmitters are produced by the microbiome. Most of those don't make it through the blood-brain barrier, but some do. Um, and we also, it seems like there's also some bacteria, there's some microbiome probably living in the brain. And so if we've got a healthy Um, blood-brain barrier, we're going to make sure that those are good bacteria as well. Um, So there's also evidence to show that some of the bacteria in our gut influence our choice of foods. 
right? So if we have really bad bacteria, we tend to eat, we tend to be drawn towards sugar. Yeah, I had candida. Candida does that. Oh, exactly. So it kind of sugar addict. Yeah. So it kind of raises funny questions about free will, right? Like who's deciding (laughs) this? (laughs) No, well, for you know, I've been in that game, and I got to tell you, it's and this is the thing that I think is sad because this is how I used to feel and what I try to impart on others is that. because it's sort of uncontrollable and seems sort of part of who you are, uh, you don't realize there's like another shot. Like it's not your fault. Like it's not, you know what I mean? Like this unbeknownst to you, you went down this rabbit hole, right? I mean, I think that's why a lot of people have type two. They're like, wait, what? I didn't know. You know what I mean? And I get it. Even athletes can go in that direction because they're overcarbing themselves and have a fit body and still be like, wait, why am I headed towards diabetes? So I think some people can accidentally get themselves there. And I think that's one of the things, you know, I experience, and especially brain fog with candida. And um, just again, this desire for carbs and sugar until you starve it of the thing that it, the crack that it is addicted to. And boy, what a difference and what a difference in life to be satiated because it is such a horrible thing to constantly have food on the brain. And that could literally be because of what we're discussing. Just no free will. It's really the, it's the bacteria doing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so eating a gut-friendly diet, including lots of fiber, that's the other thing. Increasing fiber intake increases microbial diversity. Also being in nature and just breathing the air, you're getting hundreds of strains of bacteria as you do that. Probiotics are good, particularly for some of these involved with anxiety, depression, or cognitive decline. But when you do probiotics, you're only getting one or two or five or 10 strains, whereas we want hundreds and thousands more strains. We want to really increase the whole diverse um, environment down there. So go lick some dirt. People, <laughs> no, but we, we, my friends and I talk about that when we're when we're hiking, and um, sometimes it can be dusty. But in general, uh, it's been it's had a couple of rain showers here recently, and just oh, the smell and just feels so right. And we know that we're just inhaling all of these things that are so good for us. Um, wow, uh, so so great to have you on again. We will put everything in the show notes to connect with you, but. Tell us about where we can find you and how we can benefit more from you. And can we benefit from you personally if we want to work with you one-on-one or as, you know, if there's a couple that needs help, you know, tell us how we can benefit from your knowledge. Yeah, sure. So the book is Holistic Healing for Anxiety, Depression, and Cognitive Decline. And you can get that on Amazon. And my website is brantcourtright.com. And I see people in person, not too many these days, just a few, um, but mostly online. And um, and I also do coaching and consultation around brain health. So yeah, I'm available that way too. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. And is there anything you'd like to leave with our audience? Um, no, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I haven't gone to these places with other people. I, I really appreciate just the breadth of the knowledge you bring to this. So this has been a fun conversation for me. Well, and and last but not least, uh, as of this conversation, you're you're in you're in Hawaii. You're in Kauai. What are you looking forward to doing there? Is this your first time? Like, give us a give us a little window into that tropical delight. Ah, well, I plan on spending time in Hanalei Bay, um, oh, yeah. which I think is one of the highest vibration points of the planet, um, and one of the most beautiful. One of the most just physically beautiful as well. It is so lovely there. If uh, anyone Google Hanalei Bay, that's H-A-N-A-L-E-I. It's so gorgeous. And there's, um, I love, of course, at the end of that road, this, the start of the, what is it, the Kalapapa Trail? The Nepali Trail, yeah. Right, yeah, oh, in the Nepali Trail. Thinking about the uh, lookout on the other side by Waimea, but so beautiful. Enjoy the yummy tropical, and it's great over there too because there's lots of rainfall, so it's like really yummy earth smells over there. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You too. Have a wonderful time. And everyone else, we'll see you next week. Primal Blueprint listeners don't compromise on pantry classics. Whether you're going keto, paleo, in the middle of a whole 30-month, or adding to your Primal-approved arsenal, Primal Kitchen has a full range of mayo, ketchup, dressings, and oils that add flavor and variety to any meal without ever compromising on ingredient quality. 
From avocado oil-based mayos bursting with flavors like kicky chipotle lime, creamy classic, zesty garlic aioli, or savory pesto, to unsweetened ketchups and organic mustards, there's a condiment to complement every taste bud. Be sure to stock up on Primal Kitchen avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, and new balsamic vinegar of Modena to add ease and great flavor to any dish, whether you're grilling, baking, broiling, braising, sautéing, or stir-frying. Primal Blueprint listeners can get their favorites 20% off when they use the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at checkout. 